Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Welcome back to At Your Service. I'm your host this evening, Scott Jagow. Glad to have you in. Later this hour, we're going to have a chat with Johnny Rabbit, the St. Louis radio legend. I talk to him every Sunday morning. We're going to have some stories from his life later in the hour. But first, we're going to learn about a St. Louis company that's been around for organization, I should say, that's been around for 20 years called Meds and Food for Kids. They do amazing work in Haiti and elsewhere. We are joined right now by Dr. Patricia Wolf, the founder of the organization. Thank you, Scott, for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. So tell me the origin of this organization. Um, So in 1988, which is now 35 years ago, um, our family, um, my husband and our two kids who are 11 and 14, went with the Haiti Mission of St. Louis, which was uh, led by um, some local people who had been Peace Corps volunteers in um, in Haiti like years before, and they took high school students and Webster College students, and they were looking for some uh, doctors to take. Um, I went, and then there was another local doctor who went, but speaking for myself and my family, we had never been to such a poor country before, so we were really shocked, um, kind of horrified, um, There were dead bodies on the street. No one would pick them up. And there was, and uh, we we stayed in a orphanage for boys and the boys did all the work. So my boys were 11 and 14. Their eyes were pretty wide about all these kids who cooked and cleaned and washed the dishes and Mm -hmm. sang for us, did did the laundry, did everything. And and then we um, went up the mountain uh, to this place where the local people had built a clinic, and we it was an adventure to get there uh, because we had to take a couple different um, little tap taps, which are kind of like really open air buses, and and then when we got there, we were uh, trying to rent some horses or donkeys or something, and no one was around, and so unbeknownst to us, our leadership sold the horses and the donkeys, <laughs> which we found out when we came back down the mountain. Anyway, so we go up the mountain and we're all farmed out to different people's houses, and I'm with the health agent and his family in this little hut without any kind of electricity or or even a latrine or no running water. 
and he has all these like skinny scrawny kids um, but better looking than a lot of the other kids we had 300 people who walked all night and showed up the next morning and we did not have nearly enough medicine for them nor did we have kind of the diagnostic um, capability that we needed to really help them um, and we couldn't see 300 people um, there right. was two doctors and one nurse so we sent half of them home and then they were supposed to come back the next day and some of them did come back the next day anyway I came down the hill and um, and then we were met with pitch literally with pitchforks um, we said oh just wait our leaders coming he'll explain everything <laughs> so money was exchanged and um, we carried on but I came home feeling very, very um, sad and grief-stricken, really, about this whole situation. And so I thought, if you could do something, you should do something. So I came back with some other people who did um, very specific medical things in the North and for 15 years, and um, one or two or three or four weeks a year. And we never were able to make a dent in the sickness because it was the sickness in the kids was all about malnutrition. And we really weren't treating the malnutrition. So it was like spitting in the ocean, giving them medicine. And so along about then, Mark Manieri, who's my colleague in, at WashU, um, was coming up with this formula of peanuts, powdered milk, sugar, and oil. And he gave me, gave it to me and we started making it on the street in Cap, Cap Haiti and distributing at the clinics and it, voila, it was miraculous. So this I mean, is, he, this is the ready to use therapeutic food? It is ready to use therapeutic food. It's a simple recipe, peanuts, powdered milk, sugar, oil, vitamins, and minerals. And why is and this? We didn't have the vitamins and minerals, but we just got chewable vitamins and it was just fantastic really but why is it so effective what 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 is it about that it's so good um i think it's so effective because it's exactly the right amount of protein carbohydrate and fat and um and it is uh very dense calories so the kids have small stomachs and they um and you can't you know they can't ever eat enough rice and beans and corn even if they had it and to give them enough protein and calories. And so if you make, give them dense calories that are 20% protein and 25% um, sugar and 30% fat and 40% um, uh, um, oil, they will thrive because they can, eat, they can eat a little bit of it eight times a day, drink water every time, and that's the... That's the simple thing that you tell you ask the parents to do for them the parents can take this home and feed it to the child themselves they don't have to leave the child in a hospital or um or more likely attend to the child in a hospital and lose their uh, um ability to feed their families their other kids at home or or plant or harvest or sell things in the market whatever they do to make a dollar a day so up to the miraculous and um, uh, really uh, fantastic innovation of this was that it could be done at home and it didn't require um, anything but a nurse at a, at a clinic who knew the protocol and the parents did it themselves and they could keep on about their daily, daily lives. And it worked very well. 
because of that. So um, it took the World Health Organization and the UN and um, UNICEF and the World Food Program and Doctors Without Borders, you know, like seven more years to approve of this, but it finally became approved in 2007, but we had been making it since 2003. And, um, and in 2007, we got a World Bank grant to, um, to actually share this with the Ministry of Health in the second biggest hospital in the country that we did for three years, and that was very successful. So we keep moving and getting a little bit more machine moves. First, we had a hand grinder, then we got to put a motor on it, then we put a hopper on it, and yeah, we had a lot of, yeah. So are you, so, what is the scale of it right now? Your organization and other groups in St. Louis, what is the impact that you are having around the world along with those partners? Yeah, <clears throat> so we we moved six times and with the help of many people in St. Louis, um, like Clayco and Nestle's Purina and WashU and SLU's Laboratory and uh, um, Emerson, Bungie, um, big plumbing, Icon Mechanical, they came for six weeks and put in uh, all of our water and plumbing in our factory, which we built in 2012, and then renovated in 2018, and then put in solar just this last uh, spring. Um, so now we have a factory that can make uh, enough food, enough RUTF for all the kids in Haiti, um, and we also have, um, and we don't need diesel for it. So we don't need to, um, deal with the gangs and, um, the high price of diesel and the pollution and the noise that goes along with that. So we've nearly made a big, a huge leap and we now employ 88 patients. Um, they have been since we abandoned them at the time of the, of COVID, um, they were ready to make the leap forward into independence and they've just done beautifully and they're very courageous you know in the face of lots of security threats they show up every day and this meaningful work for them and it's food it's work that puts food on their table and a roof over their head and sends their kids to school so the root cause of starvation would be what in your opinion the parents don't have any money and they don't have any money to buy they don't have any money to buy food and they don't have and because they don't have a job so it's economic um it's, it's economic distress so there's very few jobs in haiti um and we so we decided that instead of importing we could have imported this we could have just given away for free but we decided to start an industry in mm -hmm. haiti and employ people and train people and buy local peanuts from the local farmers but we had to train them as well because they were using um the techniques of their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and they and many of the peanuts were contaminated with fungus which we couldn't use so We've, we've trained like 2,500 farmers and now we can buy local peanuts um, and to put them into our products. Everything else has to be imported because Haiti doesn't make anything but the peanuts for this product. But you're creating something of an industry, which I, yep. I guess helps break the cycle of poverty? Absolutely, absolutely. So 
our people, ha- I mean, everybody has a house. Everybody uh, has their kids in school. Most of the people have a motorcycle. Some of them have a car. Um, they really are the middle, are middle class people, and it's a very small middle class. Uh, but, you know, that's really the way forward, not charity. It's just really employing people and transferring skills, you know. Well, Dr. Patricia Wolf, uh, founder of Meds and Food for Kids, it's great work you're doing. I appreciate you telling us the story about it and give us, giving us an update. In fact, we're not done, though, because coming up next, we're going to talk to your CEO, Chris Green, uh, get a boots-on-the-ground update about the operation in Haiti. So thanks again, Dr. Wolf. Thank you. Bye-bye. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink... What you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Back on At Your Service, KMOX. I'm your host this evening, Scott Jagow. Happy to be joined right now by Chris Green, the CEO of Meds and Food for Kids. We just heard from the founder of the organization here in St. Louis, Chris, uh, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got hooked up with this group. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Um, well, my background is I, I ended up moving to Haiti in 2011 and had been in the country for about three years before I uh, came into contact with Meds and Food for Kids and just fell in love with the missions, fell in love with, they, with what they were trying to achieve um, and the success that they were seeing and just thought, man, this is an organization I could really see myself committing to in, in the long haul. So uh, ended up living in Haiti for a total of eight years and five of those I was with Meds and Food for Kids as the COO. Um, and then I moved back to the States at the end of 2019 and then had the wonderful opportunity of following Dr. Wolf as uh, CEO of the organization now. What was your impetus for being in Haiti in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, people talk about a, a midlife crisis. For me, it was probably more of a quarter life. I, I found myself in my mid-20s and I thought, gosh, everything that I've that I wanted to accomplish, I'm on a great pathway to that. 
and yet I don't see this. It's not satisfying me. It's not uh, fulfilling me. And I had a sister that was in school and had taken a semester to go to Haiti, and I thought, I'll go to Haiti, see what this, you know, see what Haiti's all about, see what things are, you know, what's happening there. And it was the strangest thing, Scott. I, I went to Haiti thinking it would just be a quick trip, and something stuck with me. Something resonated. Um, I went back, closed up my affairs in the States, bought a one-way ticket to Haiti, and said, I'm going to figure things out, but this is where I'm going to be. Wow, that's an inspiring story. Um, and then getting uh, hooked up with this organization, I learned about the ready-to-use therapeutic food and how powerful that can be, plus learning in Haiti how to grow the peanuts and everything so that there's an industry around it, not just giving people food. So what can you tell us about the operation in Haiti right now as we speak? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the challenges that the country and, and we are facing. And then I'll tell you about some of the amazing things that we're seeing despite all that. So no news to anyone. Haiti has had a tough go of things for quite some time. Last couple of years have been incredibly tough. I mean, uh, I'm sure everyone has seen, read, heard something about just the terrible violence that's happening in Port-au-Prince and in the South of the country right now. Um, and, and even though we are in the north of the country, and so weirdly enough, you know, we like to tell people it's kind of like the difference between St. Louis to Chicago. You know, things can be really bad in one place and the other place be quite calm. We have had that, that benefit where we are. It has remained relatively stable. Um, but the country's tough. And what that means, I mean, unfortunately, we've seen uh, food insecurity skyrocket. We're seeing malnutrition at rates like we have never seen before. Um, insecurity is at an all-time high. Uh, but our team in the north has been able to, I mean, we have 88 people on the ground, all Haitian, all deeply committed to the organization and to our mission. And Scott, we could not do it without this team. So in the midst of all this, in the midst of all the chaos that you may see on mainstream kind of news outlets, we are we are able to still day to day, our, our team is coming to work. Our team is making sure that that life-saving, ready-to-use therapeutic food is getting made, is getting packed onto trucks, is getting sent to clinics all over the country, is ending up in the hands of those mothers and those children that need it the most. Our agriculture team is out in the countrysides working with farmers helping to impart um you know whether it be best practices implements uh post-harvest uh techniques looking for ways to strengthen those local food systems and make sure that people are are still able to earn a livelihood and and be fed you also are working on some things that are outside well a part of the food uh, economy there, but interesting side notes, I guess, side projects, uh, conversion to solar power, scaling up manufacturing, expanding the local workforce. Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's really incredible that in 2023, arguably the roughest year he's had in the last two, easily two decades, um, we were able to bring online a solar installation at our factory and and power the entire factory on solar. 
So it's 350 kilowatts of power. So during the daytime, you know, I, I like to tell people those years that I lived in Haiti, one of the worst things that could ever happen is I would be at the factory and there would be no noise because mm-hmm. that meant the generators had turned off and something was wrong. Now, thanks to, I mean, a, a myriad of dedicated supporters, volunteers, private companies all throughout St. Louis. We got this huge project um, uh, installed successfully. And now I was in Haiti earlier this year when we brought it online in May and the noise disappeared. The generator shut off and the equipment kept working. Oh, wow. And it was, it was the most, it was wild. So this is huge. I mean, to be able to run an entire factory on solar is an incredible feat. I mean, no more, no more pumping, you know, uh, diesel smoke into the air, which is incredible. Um, we also, what that's also allowed us to do is really identify some production efficiencies, you know, whether it be uh, concern about really the diesel supply and then having to be really strategic about when to run generators and how long, you know, when to start them. Oftentimes that would have some ramifications on production. So with this solar install, now we've seen our, our efficiency in production increase significantly. Our team in the midst of a difficult year, we set a production record um, in May. So in one of the most difficult times, our team was able to crank out more product um, than they had ever been able to before in a month. So that was, that's really incredible. Um, and then you're and adding, that, of course, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, and then, yeah, that's, that's allowing us to employ more people, bring in, you know, and the, the people's in Haiti, they say it's, uh, you know, I've, there's a couple different numbers, but it's up to, for every job that's there, it's up to 10 people um, often that are being fed off that one person's employment. So you can imagine when we're able to hire 20, uh, we're looking at potentially bringing on 20 more staff. I mean, that makes a huge difference um, in in that local economy. Obviously, you're having a huge impact in Haiti and things are going well there. Uh are you looking at other countries? Do you work in other countries or is it just Haiti? Yeah. So we, we produce that product distributed all throughout Haiti. And then one of the amazing things is through partnerships with UNICEF, uh, we're able to distribute that product to other countries as well. So we've exported to a total of 17 other countries, central South America, West Africa. Um, and you can imagine Scott, it's such a, Uh, It's such an empowering feeling for our team when they know not only are they helping to provide the solution for the needs in their own country, but they're actually producing product that's going places to save the lives of children in other countries. I mean, that's that's a powerful uh, feeling um, and message. And then and so really what we've what we've really tried to do with this over this year, we celebrate our 20 years and we over time have really, you know, I like to tell people, we've really begun to figure out our secret sauce, right? Which is saying, hey, development is typically done one particular way. You know, we see this all the time. Big organizations come in, great intentions, great programs, two to five years, pour millions of dollars, you know, check the boxes, um, do lots of wonderful things during that time. Two or five years ends, those, you know, that program ends, and then often very soon after it all falls apart. What we've really done is say, how do we do, how do we do this 
holist in a more holistic way, in a more sustainable way? How do we think about the future so that we're not just stuck in these cycles over and over and over again? And we have really, through learning how to better collaborate with local partners, building strong, uh, strong local workforce, really creating some systems around strong teams and communicating the vision um, and trans and really allowing us to transfer ownership to that local team. What this is really now, it's opening the door for us to say, Hey, not only can we expand what we're doing in Haiti, but there are so many other places around the world that, that need this same sort of, uh, that need this, that need the same things Haiti do. And can we really begin to think about taking that model elsewhere? We've talked a lot about the food aspect of this, but in the title of the organization is Meds and Food for Kids. So what is that part all about, the meds? Yeah, the meds. And, <laughs> you know, this is where I wish Dr. Wolf uh, could be joining me right now because she, you know, she speaks to this so well. So a lot of that is when, when you're actually taking this product and you're going out to the clinics you are and you're looking at, you're dealing with severe acute malnutrition, you're having to look at these children and say, okay, one, we're identifying that, of course, there is a, there's a nutritional need. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, underlying that nutritional need can be something else, right? It can be, uh, and I'm not even going to try to speak to all the different, like virus infections, different things that can happen. And so we have teams of nurses, Dr. Wolf um, really helps spearhead this, that go in they work with local nursing staff. They help identify what are the underlying causes, if if there, that are leading to this malnutrition. What medicines do we need to then hand out to make sure that we're not just giving that kid the nutrition they need, the, the calories they need, but we're also addressing that underlying medical need so that they can actually recover and, and bounce back to be a healthy little human being. Well, that was a good answer, uh, Chris. <laughs> good job. Uh, it's fascinating to learn about this. I did not know this organization existed and that the that the epicenter of it is St. Louis. It was founded here. In our town, we have an organization that is having such a great impact around the world. Chris Green, the CEO of Meds and Food for Kids. Thanks so much for your time. Scott, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. I loved learning about that organization. Stay tuned, though. Coming up next, Johnny Rabbit will join me. He's going to tell us a couple stories from him, his life and career, which has been astonishing, and he is a treasure of St. Louis. It is 935, and this is At Your Service. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome back to At Your Service on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. I'm your host this evening, Scott Jagow, and I am pleased to welcome into the program the one and only Johnny Rabbit. Johnny, good evening. (laughs) Good evening. It's interesting to hear you in the evening. Uh, Normally, we hear you morning, like on our Sunday morning period that I'm on with your show, but I'm glad you're doing At Your Service. What a legend in St. Louis. Yeah, it's nice to mix things up. Well, let's start there. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this program. (laughs) 
at your service. Oh. And how it got started. You know, I don't even know when it started. Uh, Robert Highland, he was the head. Uh, he, you would, he was head of the station. You would have thought he owned the station, and he owned the CBS radio network because he had the network. He could get whatever he wanted, and he did so many things. And he, he didn't invent talk radio necessarily. It existed in different places, but not on the level of KMOX. And that goes back 63, four years ago. I, I, he was an amazing person, and he came up with an amazing concept, a concept that still lives thrives and is always developing today on KMOX. I, gosh, I don't even know how many people must have done those shows, but there's something exciting about doing a show, exciting about being part of, of history. And you are, every time you open that mic at KMOX, there's something historic about it. I know this very, very night, uh, the Radio Club of St. Louis is hosting an event at the KMOX Tower site. I mean, I, I've never been there. I don't know if you have. I have not. Uh, where is it? It's in Illinois, so you know, not far from from here. I, I truly don't know exactly. You know, if you say, "Hey, you got to drive over there," oh boy, I'd have to get some information. And it's a you know very big site. There's a lot of buildings to it, a great tower, and of course a great history. And that you know, heads back to the original tower was actually in Kirkwood, yeah. Uh, but then they moved it, and and the power changes and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Joe Gearling, former uh, KMOX news director for many years is the one putting this on for the radio collectors club in st louis so uh, it, you know it's it's that feel that you get from, from at your service from and so many times we can play the voices of, of the past like they do it a lot at sports when you hear the people who were there you know harry carey and jack buck and um so many people even before that uh, unfortunately, I don't know how, you know, in the early, early days, we had no tape recording. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is lost to time. Uh, one of the things that KMOX had was a studio orchestra, which is not unusual for a big radio station. And for some reason, all of the, the sheets, the music, the copies of the music were saved. And they're all in the collection of the Lovejoy Library at Southern Illinois University, for whatever oh. reason. I don't know. Maybe maybe there could be a... a the St. Louis Symphony could do the KMOX concert. Hey, that's something you could write. Hey, that's an, a good idea there, Johnny. I like that. Yeah, I don't have much occasion to climb up the uh, the tower there in Illinois, so no, I didn't no. even know exactly no, where it is. I wouldn't want to do that. No, I shouldn't, shouldn't get involved in that kind of stuff. I just talked into the know. microphone. This past uh, week, there was an event at the History Museum, and I was very honored to be a part of it to speak for a few minutes. And you had a lot of other people speaking and just talking about radio and TV history in St. Louis. And I learned something about you that I didn't know. Speaking of symphonies and pianos at radio stations, you said that your first time on the air ever was in 1949 when you were, I believe, about 11 years old and you played the piano. I did. What a weird experience. So my parents and I uh, made a trip to Rowena, Texas, where relatives lived. I've, I, from a long time ago, they had moved from St. Louis. And for whatever reason and however they did it, there was a radio station nearby in Harlingen, Texas, and they arranged for uh, my parents and I to go in and be interviewed on the radio. I don't know what the world we talked about or they talked about. I don't think I did much talking. They said, well, uh, you play the piano. Well, these stations all had pianos. KMOX had pianos. Every station had a piano. And so uh, it was, you know, totally ad lib. And the first song that came to mind for no reason that I liked it was Sentimental Journey. 
So I played it. And I remember that we were sitting in front of an open window, a second floor, very small studio, and no recording of such a thing. And that's probably uh, very good that there is no recording of such a thing. But that's really, <laughs> I guess you could say, how I started my actual really working on the air was a WTMV in East St. Louis. Uh, uh, the home, there was the Broadview Hotel. The building is still there. Uh, I'm not sure what it is today. Uh, SIUE used it for a while. I think it might be made into apartments. But it was a very nice uh, low-power station. It was 250 watts. And I remember uh, uh, to get on, uh, the trick, I was told, that the trick of getting on the air was you're too young. They're not going to hire you. What you do is buy your own time and sell it to make money. Hmm. Uh, so I, I bought the time that I was on, and I didn't make much money because I didn't sell it very well. <laughs> and they, you know, one of the first people uh, that advertised is a place called the Latin Kitchen, a very small, greasy spoon Mexican place on the, oh, uh, well, let's see, that would have been the southwest corner of Big Ben and Clayton Road. And when I went in to collect the money, they said, yeah, we're not paying because we can't even hear the station here. This, <laughs> you couldn't hear the station west of Union Boulevard in St. Louis. So, but it was a start. And, and yeah. I, I did a jazz show, of all things. You got to start somewhere. Sure, um, you do. So what, what was it that drew you to radio in the first place? Yeah, it was actually a drugstore. My grandfather's drugstore in the Olympia apartment building at Vandeventer in West Pine, right down the street from St. Louis University. Uh, it had a radio at uh, the back bar of the soda fountain, and it was always on. And I was this was evenings, and I was always listening to the evening radio shows. Like a news show, 8.15 in the Mutual, KWK. It was Gabriel Heater. I always started with it's either good or bad. There's good news tonight. Mm-hmm. And then listen to like Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons and the Great Gildersleeve and all those shows. And WIL uh, moved in real near there at the Coronado Hotel. Uh, Jack and Bob Hetherington were brothers. One was manager and sales manager. They'd come in and play the uh, one ball pinball machine on which they gambled. Uh, and I'd keep talking, how do I get in radio? How do I get in? I really want it. I want to be on the air. I love it. And that's, those are the people who told me how to get started. But that was it. It was listening to the radio. And, of course, what I listened to, I thought I was going to be doing dramatic shows. By the time I got in, all of those shows were just about over with. So what do you do next? Uh, I decided to be a disc jockey. Mm-hmm. So music was the thing. What kind of music did you like at, the, at that time? Well, one thing I learned right away is you don't play necessarily what you like. You can really get stuck or typecast and so i played whatever it was the station was doing i remember there was a very very talented dj here in st louis called spider burks and he had a jazz nightclub i had a couple of jazz nightclubs one in gaslight square another one peacock alley in the midland hotel but he would only play soft mellow jazz he wasn't going to play any rhythm and blues records or anything else and so he really had a hard time of getting a job because that kind of stuff didn't really sell. You didn't really get ratings on it. Uh, no jazz radio station has really been successful in St. Louis unless you find one that is a non-commercial station and they get funding from the listeners. So, uh, that you know, music, uh, I played country. I was on you know, WIL, mornings, uh, WILFM, uh, strictly, you know, a current country show. And I also did... Um, uh, W-I-L-A-M, where we did legends, country legends, all of the old shows, you know, the Hank Williams and Patsy Cline and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. 
But uh, what I saw, there was a need, 1967, early 67, I had been working in San Francisco at KEWB, uh, where I got to introduce the Beatles at the Cow Palace on their very first show, their very first American tour in August of 64. And wow. I came back to St. Louis and I decided, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable in San Francisco. Um, people from the station were moving to uh, a station, I can't call letters, I can't remember, a big one in Los Angeles, and I had a job there. And I said, oh, this West Coast life really wasn't for me, so I came back to St. Louis. And I found out nobody here was playing what they were playing there. So I pitched the program concept of um, sort of album rock, progressive rock, underground rock, whatever you want to call it, um, music uh, to uh, Keishi. And they were such dire straits, they didn't want it, they hated it, but they said, we got to do something. <laughs> because when I took over as manager, they were the average spot rate was 60 cents. And there weren't a lot of spots in the air. Yeah. Um, so it uh, it was not an instant success. I mean, I remember one person who owned a, a very famous restaurant in uh, Southwest County uh, came to the station with a gun. I barricaded myself in the office. He was going to shoot me. He said, you're breaking the law. The FCC, can't, you can't get away with this. Where are you? Oh, my gosh. Well, because so you were playing it wasn't always... rock and roll records? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Our first record... Now, since I was the rabbit, our first record was White Rabbit, Rabbit <laughs> by Jefferson Airplane. And so yeah, that was, you know, the Amboy Dukes and then later uh, Ted Nugent and uh, the, the other things that were out of it and the Bob Dylan stuff I mean, that, that wasn't getting played elsewhere. There was, you know, the other stations were uh, top 40, so to speak, stations. They were playing the hit 45s of whatever artists, Bobby Venton and people like that. Of course, we didn't play anything like that. Uh, and we had a tremendous following first in the colleges of St. Louis. Those are the people who caught on first. And the only way Casey made it was we sold advertising to record companies. Um, you know, maybe some people could say, well, it was like payola. I guess in a way right. it was. But they were the backers. They, were the biz. they had product to sell. They weren't selling it in St. Louis. And this was a way to do it. The uh, second early big advertisers were concert producers and I actually started a company called Concert Productions and we had the first progressive rock concert I put it on a Keel Opera House it was Cream of course Eric Clapton, uh, Jack uh, Bruce uh, oh God, I can't think of his name, Ginger uh, Baker and uh, it was a sellout which we had been in the convention center we'd have made some money, real money with it uh, but we sold out the 3,545 seats. Ticket prices were an astounding three, four, and five dollars. So, <laughs> no way around. You weren't going to make Not a lot anymore. of money even if you had a sold out show. Ticketmaster wasn't around back then. <laughs> oh, no. No, no. Anyway, you uh, bought your tickets usually at the arcade building mezzanine. Yeah. Who was the uh, Wallace, the guy who was at the program the other day at the History Museum? The man of many names, Rick Wallace. Yes, Rick Wallace. Uh, I, now, his last radio job was there at KMOX in the news department. And I loved his story about all the different names that he came up with. He talked about, you know, how Roger Brand is known as the colonel. So one of his bosses says, you have to uh, have a b bigger name than that. So he told him, you're captain. <laughs> Rick Wallace. That's right. He, he was, it was really, he didn't even, we didn't have enough time for him to get into all oh, the yeah. names he did. He probably did about 25 different names. And he was doing news and doing traffic reports for what was called Metro Traffic. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember he, he would be on several stations at the same time. 
maybe two or yeah, three exactly. four stations. Right. And, you know, it was weird. It's really, really my, a great guy. My favorite name that he said, and I, I can't imagine trying to say this on the air all the time. Well, was I know the one. Chuck Schick. Chuck I know, Schick. and I would never even try it. I wouldn't even. <laughs> I just said it oh, twice. Gosh. That's it. I'm not doing it again. Um, no. But what was your name before? What was your name on the air before Johnny Rabbit? Well, before Johnny Rabbit, I was just Ron Elves. I okay. used my real name uh, initially. Then I was in San Antonio and Boston. At San Antonio, I was a KONO in Boston, WCOP. I was Ron McKay. Uh, I selected that name. I just liked the sound of the name. And then uh, we moved to Cincinnati, WCPO, where I did mm -hmm. the morning show, and I wore glasses, and I used the name Specs Early. <laughs> and Specs Early? That's yeah, cool. yeah. That that well, what can you do? And then after uh That sounds like Les Nesman. Yeah. <laughs> from right. WKRP. That, that was just like that. Uh <laughs> then later on I in uh, San Francisco I was Pete Bunny, a takeoff of Johnny Rabbit, mm. and then came back and then I used some other names. Um I was not a DJ per se on Casey, for example, and then later on, I started KADI. Katie is a rock station, which had been one of those failing jazz stations. And so on those, uh, I was Rockwell on Katie, and on Casey, I was Dr. Good. But I strictly was a fill-in, you know, somebody didn't show or you needed to fill in some show of some sort. Um, so then I was phasing out of the full DJ business and getting to station management more and consulting for also consulted uh, WABX in Detroit for the company that owned KC at that time in the, in the late sixties. So today, uh, what are you planning to do going forward? I know you've been doing these presentations at the museum and there's a speaker series that's now starting next year, going to be named after you. So uh, right. Isn't are that you going to finally retire? <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to retire. I mean, it's, honestly, when you said that, it scared me. It's right to think about retiring. A lot of people say, hey, you ought to retire. I don't want to. I'm going to keep doing these things. And that's the annual Johnny Rabbit Lecture. Uh, Jody Sal, the president of the museum, uh, announced it, that it was a permanent thing. Even so this is going to go on long after we're all gone, which is really quite an honor. So I'm doing a lot of work with Oasis and have been for some time. Did a, a program today on planes, trains, riverboats, and automobiles for Oasis and Clayton. Now, these are totally different than the History Museum programs. These are done in a classroom setting. So we have eh, 20 to 30 people, and we have usually uh, 10 or 12 on Zoom as well. But I like the idea that you can, uh, other than the Zoomers, is that you can really talk to these people and get input from them, and, uh, and that they can ask questions. It makes it a lot easier than being in a big theater. And I love being in St. Louis. I'm sitting in my office, the second floor of our house in St. Louis Hills. We've lived here for 47 years. I've been married to Gwen for 50 years. Uh, our daughter, Amy, is, I, I don't even know exactly what she is, but she's a international corporate show producer. I met her the Google other day. And other companies. Yeah, yes, she's lovely. A, I met her the other oh, day. Thank you. You didn't meet our son, Eric, because he's in New York City. We're, he just got an interesting job as um, he's a lighting designer. I works at the Muni every year. Uh, but he's going to be spending two weeks on board the world's largest cruise ship, hmm. Royal Caribbean's Icon, and he's working on the theater lighting. This this ship is actually five times bigger than the Titanic. Oh. And so he's going to be crossing from Spain to Puerto Rico, and there will be no passengers in the boat. It will all be people getting it ready for its, its initial run sometime in January. 
Well, Johnny, the, the other day when we had that program, it, the house was packed uh, because it was obvious how much you are beloved in the community of St. Louis, and everyone who spoke mm -hmm. said the same thing, called you a treasure, which is true. And <laughs> I just wanted to spend a few minutes uh, since I had the show tonight talking to you. Uh, Gosh, it's nice of you. Thank you for all of that. Yeah. Um, so we will talk on Sunday again. You said you yeah. had a true crime thing you were going to talk a about from 1945. true crime, it is. Yeah. Um, 1945, right before Christmas in 45, there was a murder. And this is a story from a reporter at the Globe Democrat. I don't believe it was ever in print, but I happen to find, I happen to be assigned the desk that hadn't been used for years when I went to work for the Globe as a columnist. Uh, and there were all a bunch of papers. Also, the bunch of papers in the desk were accompanied by a dead mouse in a mousetrap. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good story. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it in one segment. I might have to do a little in the second week. Is that to be okay? Oh, yeah, that's fine. I appreciate it. Um, every Sunday morning at 8.50, you'll hear Johnny Rabbit take us back in time to the history of St. Louis. It's appointment radio. Can't miss it. We'll <laughs> talk to you this weekend. Oh, thank you very much. Great way to wrap up this edition of At Your Service. Thanks to producer Matt Pajeski. I'm Scott Jagow. Thank you for listening. Coming up at 10 o'clock, it's the best of DGS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.